Welcome. You're listening to the Vital and Thriving Podcast for Congregations Building Beloved Community. I'm Scott Sherman. And I'm Claire Dietrich Rana. We're two freewheeling, fun-loving, kind of ridiculous Episcopal priests. Speak for yourself. Serving the people of God and God's church here in the Bay Area. While supporting each other and you in noticing and responding to the movements of the Spirit in this unique moment we find ourselves in. Well, hello, friends, and welcome back to the Vital and Thriving Congregations podcast. Today, we have such an exciting interview that we are rudely interrupting Scott's sabbatical for it. So rudely. Oh, my gosh. Thank you, Claire. (laughs) Which means that both he and our interviewee are joining us today from England. So before we introduce our guest, Scott, do you want to say anything about where you are and what you're up to? Well, I'm in Cambridge, and I won't go into the the research stuff just to say that if it's possible to die from overexposure to choral even song, I, 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 may, be, I may be the first victim. <laughs> Having a wonderful time, and I'll, I'll see you all after Easter. Mm-hmm. But today, we are just really thrilled to welcome to our podcast the Reverend Dr. Sam Wells. Sam has been the vicar vicar at St. Martin in the Fields in London since uh, 2012. He served as a parish priest for 26 years, uh, not including seven spent in the U.S. as the dean of Duke University Chapel. Which is where I first met him while an undergraduate there. That's right. And thank you for making this connection clear. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Sam's also a visiting professor of Christian ethics at King's College in London. And uh, some of our, in fact, many of our listeners, of course, will know uh, the Reverend Dr. Ellen Clark King, uh, who is dean there. And he is the author of, get this, 46 books. It's funny. I, I thought I'd read all of his books, and clearly, clearly I haven't. I've read several of them, but 46 books, including books on Christian ethics, uh, mission, ministry, scripture, liturgy, and most recently, preaching. He is married to Joe Wells, who is Deputy Secretary General of the Anglican Communion. You know, uh, when Claire suggested we interview Sam, I responded by saying that I think he may be one of the most important contemporary voices writing about Christian missiology. Uh, And I visited uh, the church he leads uh, in London, and it's such an exemplary sort of cutting edge, I think, uh, creative, innovative uh, missional congregation. Uh, so this was definitely worthwhile while I was on sabbatical. So Sam, thank you for making time for us and welcome to our podcast. We're glad you're here. Well, Claire and Scott, it's a, a real pleasure to be with you and uh, in a different way to be with those who listen in. Mm. So we like to begin our conversations with a big question to which you can respond with as much or as little detail as you'd like. You're now a vicar of a large and thriving congregation in London, a leader and speaker in the wider church around the world, the author of a truly wild number of books. How did you get here? Um, well, I, I have tended to regard my ordination as my failure to be a layperson. <laughs> and <clears throat> I was ordained when I was 26. Mm. 
I guess I, I thought I wanted to be a journalist or possibly an academic, but I also read the Gospels and saw that they were all about poverty. Mm. So somewhere between that facility with words, which obviously turned out not to be able to be suppressed, mm. story that you've told, mm. um, but also a calling to be with those experiencing social disadvantage, which I saw as where Jesus spent most of his time. Uh, I guess a vocation came about that combined uh, those two things um, and then led to a lot of reflection on the practice of ministry, out of which a lot of my writings, I mean, many of my writings have come about through reflection on dilemmas and challenges that I've faced in ministry. And then I guess what happened from about 1997 onwards, so from about six or seven years into, ministry, into ordained ministry, was I started to take up more institutional leadership positions, initially informally with a government-sponsored regeneration scheme on the housing project I was living on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when I moved to Duke more formally as one of you know, the handful of people that reported to the university president mm-hmm. uh, and ran an institution that employed about 25 people and then through the religious life staff, perhaps another 50. And now at St. Martin's, uh, an institution that employs about 250 people and mm-hmm. uh, has programs, you know, a large social enterprise that employs about 110 people and uh, work with homelessness that probably employs about another 120 people and then with those who run the church and those who do the fundraising um we get up to about 260 or so and i guess the continuities through there are first of all the very first question that inspired my phd was what does it mean to live a holy life for a lay person particularly a person you know collectively because, of course, I'd failed to answer that question by being ordained myself. So I was interested that I was going to spend the rest of my life with congregations and I needed to know the answer to that question. So that's one point of continuity. Another point of continuity, I think, would be my recognition over 33 years in ordained ministry now that one continuity throughout is powerlessness, that actually I think whether you're in a sort of shabby, chic suburb, as I was in Cambridge for two or three years, um, where I used to see every, everybody was the sister of somebody famous, uh, or whether you're mm-hmm. an underclass housing project, as I was in the east of England for six years, or in a Rust Belt uh, parish, as I was in the northeast for four or five years, or um, here at St. Martin's. Uh, everyone feels a barrier between them and the person they'd love to be, a barrier between them and the opportunities they'd like to have, or a frustration that they do have skills and opportunities, but the world doesn't seem to be getting any better. So mm-hmm. uh, powerlessness is a kind of a theme. And I, and I guess in that sense, there's a continuity of a, of a conviction about the Holy Spirit, about how the, con- the Holy Spirit gives us power, sets us free, makes us creative, enables us to use our gifts for the glory of God and the building of God's people. So I guess those would be continuities. Um, I guess, in a sense, the big, well, the two big shifts would be how on earth did I end up at Duke University and how on earth, given that I was at Duke University, which, as we all understand, is the promised land, 
that I would leave the promised land and choose to go to into exile in London. Mm. Um, that's not kind of how the Bible works. Exiles are usually forced upon people. <laughs> mm. So mm. I I had done my PhD about virtue ethics, about narrative ethics, and particularly looking at the work of Stanley Harawas, who had then mm-hmm. become a collaborator. We'd written a book together and uh, a friend. Um, and so I'd been to Duke a couple of times and uh, to you know do seminars and lectures and so on. And so when the dean of the chapel position came up, I already knew it was the divinity school in the country in the world that I'd most like to be involved with. So that was obviously a draw. I didn't realize I was eligible because I thought it was for Methodists, as you know, many people mm. would think about you. <laughs> the chapel was interdenominational. And even though having played squash, I remember in, uh, in mid December with, uh, a friend who said, would you ever live in America? And I said, no, and I would never do that. By, the end of December or beginning of January, I got a letter saying, we'd like you to come and look at this position. And they were very persuasive. And it was a wonderful job. So I guess that really changed. I was, I didn't really tell anybody at the time, but I was actually working part-time, partly bringing up the kids. We were, our kids were small, doing a bit of writing and then working in a small parish. Uh, so it was a pretty lowly, uh, non, you know, it was a wonderful parish, but it wasn't uh, prestigious. Um, and so to be sort of catapulted from that into one of the most prominent pulpits in the, the mainline church in America was obviously a, quite a big change. Mm-hmm. We came back to this country in 2012, and St. Martin's, in a way, brought together, I guess, given the story I've told, it's a place that brings together poverty and institutional leadership and a commitment to discipleship, you know, to, to holiness of life. Um, born out in our Nazareth community today. And um, then, of course, when I was offered the visiting professorship at King's, the academic side was ticked as well. So it ticked all the boxes, really. Mm. Thank you so much for that. Yeah. You know, picking up on something you were saying, Sam, this, uh, uh, or I guess Claire was was no, uh, noting this, this idea, that, uh, one of your themes is that Jesus spent 90% of his time uh, being among the people of Nazareth. Uh, and I know one of the phrases you you use in your ministry is heart edge. Uh, mm-hmm. And I wonder if you could say a word about that, this idea of you know coming alongside, not imposing solutions, but kind of that approach to ministry that, that you call heart edge. Well, uh, I guess there's two halves to this. The, uh, the first half is if you think of four kinds of ways of relating to somebody experiencing social disadvantage who's profoundly different from you and in a way that suggests that you have privileges that they don't. The first is what I call working for, where I have all the answers and you have all the problems. The -hmm. second is what I call working with, where we get alongside each other and round the table and we each bring our different gifts, whether, you know, in the case of a homeless person, it would be the local authority, it would be the local banks or something, the police force, businesses, uh, faith communities, non-profits. We all get around the table together. That's working with. Being with is where we set aside seeing homelessness as a problem. We see a person beyond the label and we sit down and we talk about 
problems in the English Premier League and why Man United have been underperforming for the last <laughs> few years. Whether there's a problem going on with their centre forward, we're not knowing about, you know, and and important things like that. And um, being four is where you go on your website, your blog site, and you write a blog saying we should never call people homeless. We should talk about people experiencing homelessness and you criticise everybody else's language and you virtue signal and you tell everybody how they should <laughs> And the difference between them is really... We, we, we know nothing of that in San Francisco. No. No, I, 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 I've never we, heard we, of we don't do that. We don't do that at all. Part of the world ever. Where there isn't um, and in the Episcopal Church, it's a completely unknown, actually, in my experience. <laughs> yeah, um, this is all news. So the, the, the difference is that the working for and the being for don't actually require meeting a homeless person or a person experiencing social disadvantage at all. You know, you've, you've got all the answers. You, you know, you set up your organization, you do it all at arm's length, or you do it from behind your computer, computer screen. Uh, so working with is more like community organizing and being with, which is the one that I favor, are different from that. And, and the, re- the simple reason why I think it's all about being with is it's, to use a technical term, is it's eschatological. In heaven, there will be no problems to fix. And therefore, we, don't, we won't have any working for. And we'll realize how much we miss working for because working for was actually a mask behind which we could hide because we found being with too difficult. Mm. And so if you understand those four categories, working for, working with, (laughs) being with, and being for, then the next move is to say, how did Jesus spend his life with us? And in very brief terms, you could say he spends 1% of his time in Jerusalem saving us from our sins. I mean, I've got some questions about that terminology, but we'll leave those for another day. Uh, he spends 9% of his time in Galilee building a social movement, gathering disciples, community organizing, and so on. He spends 90% of his time in Nazareth being with us. Now, of course, we could say God had never done an incarnation before. God didn't know how to do this, should have asked us. We know so much better. 2,000 years later, we've got the experience of the church. We could have given God some better ideas because actually, in practice, we organize our life the other way around. You know, we go on a mission trip, we build houses in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, even though it's obvious they don't need houses after Hurricane Katrina and places are just going to get blown down again. We do the working for thing, and it's really more about us than it is about the people who who we imagine need houses. So in my book, Nazareth Manifesto, I basically lay out the the problems with the working for model and our, our assumptions about it and how God actually does things the other way around and how patronizing it is of us to think we know better than God. So once you've established that being with is the telos, is the goal of all human interaction, that is what everything is working towards. It doesn't mean we don't need a dentist because I wouldn't fancy doing my own teeth. But but the teeth, (laughs) the point of the dentist is to take the teeth issue off the table with me so I don't have to worry about my teeth so I can go back to what life is all about. Life is all about four things for me, being with God, being with ourselves, being with one another, and being with God's good creation. It's mm. all in those four. And so you have a dentist to put you in a sense like a boxer, to put the boxer back in the ring, um, because you can't be in the ring if you've got problems with your teeth. So everything is organized around being with. So so um, the mission statement of St. Martin the Fields is at the heart on the edge. Mm. And... 
that came about because we are in Trafalgar Square. You know, if you're driving along the motorway to London, the and you see a go past a road sign that says 43 miles to London, it is 43 miles to King Charles's statue, which is 150 yards from St Martin the Fields. We are at the heart of London. Um, but we are on the edge of Trafalgar Square. Uh, we also appeal to the heart in our cultural programme, our music, our 450 ticketed events, our 350 concerts a year. Uh, you know, we, we appeal to the heart. To, 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 but we are also on the edge because we push the boundaries of how you do social enterprise, how you integrate that with the life of the church, how you integrate that with uh, work with homeless people and so on. Uh, and we're also on the edge because we're alongside people who life circumstances have put on the edge. And our fundamental conviction is that that is where Jesus spent most of his time. That is where God hangs out. And if you want to go and find Jesus, you need to go to the edge. So bringing the, the heart, as in the pumping heart, to the edge and, and realising that the, the edge is actually God's heart is the kind of philosophy of St. Martin the Fields. So you can see how that relates to the being with. Uh, they're not identical, but they're obviously closely related. Yeah. So this focus on being with, I think, is really going to resonate a lot with our listeners and with those of us who are moving through this Vital and Thriving Congregations Initiative. And I had not read Nazareth Manifesto until you agreed to come onto the podcast Same. and Scott recommended it to me. I told you, you um, had to read it. <laughs> yeah, That's he basically right. yeah. said, this is Sam's, I think he said, this is Sam's most important work. Um, and I, oh my Sorry, gosh, Tom. I, well, next one, <laughs> let's say one of his most important. Incarnational Theology and you need to read that one too. Yeah, but I would also say a future this bigger than the, the yeah, past is also too. pretty important. Coming, Scott. <laughs> so I had read some of your other books, but I'm, I'm still making my way through this. But I love how you frame this in the beginning. And when you talk about poverty and how we can understand that as, I think you frame it as like, oftentimes we think of it as like a deficit challenge. Like there's all these technological and innovative solutions to a deficit. Or we can think of it as a crisis of isolation. And, and that completely reframes how... We understand the ministry of a church. Um, I, I just, it was so powerful how you wrote about that. I wonder if you could just maybe dig into that a little well, bit. Just in, for a, in our a few listeners. sentences, I haven't done a very good job of putting the few sentences so far, so I'll try and do better. But, but in, a, in a few sentences, the, what I regard as the paradox of today's life, I mean, I, I mean, across the probably developed world. Um, that's a big generalization, but I'll, I'll try to justify it, is that we as a culture have come to understand our human predicament as one of limitation, mm. that we don't live long enough, that we don't know enough, that our bodies are fragile, sometimes disabled, sometimes sick, sometimes just, you know, we can't fly. And, and all, these are all limitations. So the people we prize in our culture are the people that transcend or uh, overcome limitation. Surgeons who change hearts one for another, 100-meter track and field athletes who break through the 10-second barrier, those kind of people. Those are the highest status people in our culture because they overcome limitation. In other words, they 
they offer that promise that we can overcome all limitation, astronauts who go to the moon and other, other places perhaps. Now, the paradox at the heart of our culture is that my conviction is that our human predicament is not fundamentally limitation. Mm. Uh, the human predicament is fundamentally isolation. Mm. That we already have everything we need. In a theological frame of reference, God has already given us everything we need. That creation, incarnation, resurrection, Pentecost have given us everything we could possibly need. And fundamentally, we've been given each other. Mm. And here's the paradox. The paradox is that in our obsession with overcoming limitation, we end up increasing isolation. Mm. We become so the classic example of that is our our iPhone, which enables us to overcome the limitation of not being able to be in Australia and the UK or California at the same time. Yeah. Because we can zoom and text and so on. But in Zooming and texting, our relationships with those we're living in the same house has break down. So, I mean, that's or our ability to relate to our neighbours and see our neighbours as a gift is just eradicated. Uh, so that's, that is what I sum up as the, as the classic situation of our culture. And, and obviously, if our problem is isolation, then our calling is to be with. If our problem is limitation, then our obvious calling is to work for. So it all... It all fits into so that's how that's how the Nazareth Manifesto begins. Sam, one of the things I I love that you do in your books is often you'll you'll take uh, very traditional kind of theological themes and then really uh, help us engage in a in a present relative way. Uh, I was just reading today where you, you said Christmas, Good Friday, Easter, and Pentecost. Uh, name the four key convictions of kingdom communities, but we could call them abundance, grace, freedom, and reconciliation. Um, mm. Sorry, that's a sidebar, uh, but it, it leads no, to this I question. I, I want to talk about uh, this idea where you, you talk about the church uh, as the Christian word for a process by which, among other things, um, this is in your book, uh, Incarnational Ministry, you say violence is recognized, acknowledged, and named by by which the sin through which Christians fall short is distinguished from the evil by which they've been engulfed, and by which wounded parties seek to tell a truthful story, make penance, and try to establish an agreement that articulates the wisdom needed to prevent a resumption of embattlement. And, and the list just goes on. Um, so. Where where do you see the church living into this kind of call? Well, uh, I'm not going to talk about the church I currently serve because that feels, you know, that yeah. doesn't feel very modest. Um, but I've just mentioned it, so that wasn't very modest either. Um, I, I guess I would think of three settings, one that I know very well, two that I know less well. I'll start with the two that I know less well. We're talking in February 2024, when the Gaza war is in still in full swing, and it's mm -hmm. ghastly to behold. There are Christians living in the Holy Land who have a daily struggle uh, whether to fight, whether to run away, 
whether to hide or whether to live a reconciled, abundant life. And I don't think anyone listening to this podcast would blame them if they took one of the first three options, but there are people living the fourth option. And I think that is, it doesn't get in the news because the news wants to see it as a binary of Arab versus Jew. But the Christians who live in Israel-Palestine break that binary. And breaking that binary is not just making things a bit more clumsy for the news presenters. It's a really important theological statement. Um, and But to live in that theological statement is to recognise um, in your own body how complex relationships are. And I think they're at the front line of exactly that paragraph that you just read out. Um, the second example I'd give would be Christians in a country like Pakistan, where being a Christian is dangerous and attacks on churches are relatively common. And we hear about them when they kill 40 or more people, but that just shows how many of them there are. And again, they face a similar set of options, although fighting isn't one of them in Pakistan. And yet there are people living remarkable lives of grace and mercy and hospitality. So closer to my own experience, um, the first book I wrote about being with was called Living Without Enemies, and I wrote it with a person called Marsha Rowan, who I admire greatly, and even after writing a book with her. And... <laughs> Uh, Marsha helped to found and has run largely since 1993 an organisation called the Religious Coalition for a Nonviolent Durham. Mm. And I wrote the book with her because I told the story with her of how that organisation started as a working for organisation that was lobbying for gun control because Durham, North Carolina, you know, has a rate of homicide up there with Detroit and Miami for, for its size. And, but it all, you know, happens really in northeast central Durham, basically. And then uh, they moved to working with where they create a coalition, which is why they call themselves a coalition. And they still have monthly lunches where the coalition speak together. But then they became a being with organization that met on the site of homicides in Durham. Often you could still see the blood on the tarmac, literally, and, and had vigils with with families of those who've been killed now they still do those but they perhaps the most significant thing they now do is is a restorative justice program where they well they do two things the restorative justice program and and a program where they make sort of circles of support around people coming out of jail and usually for murder and, and the restorative justice, as people on the podcast know, don't be familiar, is a process of bringing perpetrators and victims face-to-face in supportive environments and taking that process of reconciliation as far as both parties are prepared for it to go. Um, that is unbelievable work where, you know, you really have to, you know, to, to me, you know it's real ministry when you don't think, oh, we ought to say a prayer for the, before we start this, you think, I cannot do this if we do not say a prayer before we start this. Mm-hmm. And then it's real mm-hmm. ministry. Mm-hmm. And it's that kind of ministry. And um, so those would be just three examples. Yeah. Such powerful examples. 
I want to tie this next question into what you were saying earlier about isolation. Um, when you were describing that framing, we have a wonderful U.S. Surgeon General currently, Vivek Murthy, who um, talks a lot in kind of national media about this um, epidemic of loneliness in America and how loneliness is like a crisis, not only to our mental health, but to our physical health and to the health of our communities. Um, so uh, kind of a parallel <laughs> articulation to some extent. Mm -hmm. um, steeping in your work in the last few weeks, um, I've noticed some themes and and one that I, I wonder if it relates to this is this distinction between enjoyment and use, um, particularly interpersonally. So you note in one place that you'd hope uh, a member of a Christian congregation could say, here I am enjoyed, elsewhere I'm used, which is not to say you want people to be used, but just that that's the reality of our our living, our, our lives. I know in much of the Bay Area, people feel just utterly spent, completely wrung out by the obligations and demands of our work and our lives. What is so important about being enjoyed and enjoying one another. It's the best thing there is, Claire. And, and I'm not going to embarrass you, but I, I do th I think I've worked out that you must have been in Duke University Chapel in May 2007 when I gave a baccalaureate address. I'm not mm. going to embarrass you by asking you to tell me what it was about. I think I remember I what was. it was about. But um, mm -hmm. uh, a year later, I gave a baccalaureate address to people much younger and more innocent than you. <laughs> um, but it was called With Both Hands. And I talked about the things in life we do with one hand and the things in life we do with two. And the thing, if you imagine yourself in a supermarket, Harris Teeter or somewhere, do you have Harris Teeter in California? No, I do not, but North I remember Carolina. it from Grocery the South. <laughs> yeah, Target or something. I mean, you must have Target. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so then there are some things, uh, a can of soup, shall we say, uh, that you'll just take off the shelf and toss into your cart, and that'll be uh, with one hand. But then if you were, let's imagine, in a different kind of a store, and somebody you loved very much gave you a, a ring with a, a precious stone on it to mark some significant threshold, I can't possibly imagine what that could be, um, you would hold that in two hands. You would you would cup your hands and receive it in two hands because that represented a commitment to lifelong love and cherishing. So the first one is using, and the second one is enjoying. A can, a can of uh, soup is something we simply use. I mean, sure, if it if it was something like, shall we say, parsley or rosemary or celery, it might become part of a soup we made ourselves and therefore become something we actually enjoyed. But 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 usually a can of soup from a supermarket shelf is something that we would pick up, quickly eat, and, and it would be fuel, if you like. Whereas an engagement ring, oh, sorry, I've just broken cover there. Um, mm. And it, it would be something that was a symbol. It was like an icon of, of something profound, even if it the marriage didn't work out, it would still be a symbol of hope and a pledge of covenant. Mm. Um, and f for me, life is about transferring uh, relationships from the first kind to the second kind. We, we 
to be with somebody is to enjoy somebody who often the rest of the world would only use. And so what you're trying to do, let's just take a couple of examples, maybe three examples. So let's go back to the supermarket. You have the checkout assistant and the checkout assistant uh, looks weary. And you can say to them, can you just hurry up with that cornflakes? I've, you know, I've got to get home and get supper on for the kids. Or you can say, your hair looks nice. Where did you get it done? In other words, I'm seeing you. I'm noticing you. I'm not making a pass at you. I'm just relishing you and cherishing you and seeing there's a human being and you're not just another version of a machine. Uh, so to use that person is to treat them as if they might just as well be something you've put barcodes by yourself mm. and you've chosen them because they're slightly quicker than the barcode or you wanted a bag or whatever it might be. But to say your hair looks nice, where did you get it done? Or that was a big sigh. I hope you're near the end of your shift is to enjoy them, is to say you're a real person. Mm. So to take another example, there could be somebody in distress. Say you're a pastor. Some people listening to this might actually be pastors. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I was in this situation this morning, so it's fresh in the mind. A guy came into the end of morning prayer and started telling us all that we should be Hindus. That's what happens in central London. Mm. And <laughs> so what do you do yeah. in that situation? You can say, I'm sorry, I'm too busy. I've got a phone call to make at nine o'clock and just clear off. Or you can say, give, give me a moment, text the person you're making a phone call to, to at nine o'clock, say, give me five, and listen to that person so intently for five minutes and say how amazing it must be to be a Hindu. And I've got so much to learn about Hinduism, and there were even more gods than I realized. And actually, if everybody, if every Hindu was enthusiastic as you, I think a lot of people in the world will feel differently, and so on. But actually, don't say very much. Just you know, give them eye contact, listen. Enjoy them, in other words. So it can be about quality, not not quantity. That's what I'm saying. Um, and then I, I guess the the other thing would be in a more intimate setting with a member of your own household. When you say to to each other, as members of households do still occasionally do, um, do you know what we're not? We're going to put our laptops and our phones away for this evening, and we're just I'm just going to say to you you know, like you might do on 31st of December, I wonder what part of the last 12 months you enjoyed the most. I wonder what part was the most important part. I wonder where you really flourished in the last year. I wonder what part of the last year you could take away and still have had all the 2023 you really needed. And then you really enjoy them. So to me, it's all about, and, and, and church is is the place where that, transfer from use to enjoyment is most exhibited so that the whole idea comes from augustine and uh, in his work uh, on christian doctrine very near the beginning so you don't have to read the whole book and you don't have to read it in latin and he talks about that distinction that what we use lasts for a limited time and what we enjoy lasts forever and but the difference between me and augustine there are one or two <laughs> um i won't go into the obvious ones but the difference on this is that he he thinks you can only enjoy God and you use everything else to get to the enjoyment of God. Mm. 
I disagree with that. I think I think enjoyment is our goal in every relationship. We're always trying to transfer a, a use relationship. I mean, there are always small ways, like I said, about the checkout assistant where we can do that. One of my favorite moments in the discussions we had about the pandemic online when we did all of church online was when I was talking about this kind of stuff. And I one guy looked like I'd lost eye contact with him on Zoom, which is about the worst thing you can do on Zoom, apart from eat. Mm-hmm. And he was drifting off. I thought he was drifting off, and so I said his name, and I said, um, tell me where where you've gone to. And he said, I was wondering what part of me God most enjoys. Yeah. So if you think about just to finish on that yeah. thought, if you mm. think about, if, if, if you're committed to a sense that some people go upstairs to heaven when they die and some people go downstairs to hell, then what what God and we are practically doing is using people in order to get them upstairs. But if you believe that we live God's future now as a church in order to live today the life we'll be living with God in Christ forever, then we've got time really to enjoy people. Uh, and it, it create, that's really what the Future Begin the Past book is all about and, yeah. and what that actually entails. And so that phrase, living God's future now, is is my way of saying enjoyment is what the church is made for and is made to model. And and you, every vestry meeting, you find yourself with a choice about whether we use this fundraiser, whether we use this All Saints service, whether we use this new youth worker to get to something more important, or whether we enjoy them with without a determined outcome without a clear metric, simply to enjoy the glory of God being fully, a human being fully alive. Yeah. Mm. I, I've just, I just read that book and I was really mm. struck by the way you, you look at sort of some traditional kind of theological paradigms and then suggest that, I can't remember if you use Charles Taylor's language, but that, that kind of uh, the, this idea of the age of authenticity where, uh, where you know people just don't trust institutions anymore. That you really you need you need new language and new uh, new emphasis, uh, particularly when there's just uh, people have moved on from from church. Certainly, uh, great numbers. Another another word you another theme uh, is uh, abundance. Uh, so enjoyment, abundance. Say a little bit about this idea that of moving from a narrative of scarcity within our churches to to one of a, of abundance. What is that, and why does it matter? Well, that's real in my book, God's Companions, and what I talk about there is the fact that our culture, again, similarly to the points about isolation and limitation, our culture is captivated by a, a, um, an imagination of of scarcity. So what I mean by that is that in every conversation, and this is true in the church almost as much as it is true in the wider society, sadly, there's an assumption that uh, if only we had more, we'd be okay. And that might be more. We don't have enough information. We don't have enough wisdom. We don't have enough resources. And there's so many other things we don't have enough of. I think at the bottom of that list lie two things that we never name what seems like the big one and what's the really big one the first is we don't have enough revelation 
you know, if God would only show us what God wanted us to do, who God truly is, you know, these kind of things. This is, we don't have enough revelation. But at the bottom, really at the bottom of that pond lies the unsayable truth that we think we don't have enough God. That God is just too small and God is in danger of running out. Uh, mm. And we have to make up the difference. And that's a really tough ask because God, we, you know, we, we, it, it, review, it reveals both a lack of trust in God and a resentment of God. You know, it, treat, it treats God as if you like a, a parent who died when we were a teenager and we somehow have to complete the work when we're just too young and not, not strong enough and experienced enough to do it. And that we relate to God in that kind of a way. So in uh, I start God's Companions with three stories, John 2, John, 6, John 4, and John 6. John 2, there's too much wine. Uh, John 4, there's too much water. And John 6, there's too much bread. And those th four, three stories at the beginning of John's Gospel are transforming our imaginations from thinking, from assuming there's not enough God to actually realizing there's too much God. So the real issue is not an inadequacy in God. It's a self-protection in ourselves. Because if you imagine the tidal wave of water and wine that flow towards us, we are so anxious about losing our identity and being drowned that we put up barriers against the too much that God is. Mm. And those barriers become fundamental to our sense of ourselves, and we get into a mindset of scarcity because we've actually kept out the too much that God is. So how does that play out in terms of the life of the church? Well, I'm going to go for a hot-button issue now, which will be controversial with some, I guess, but probably not so much in California and probably not so much in the Episcopal Church. Uh, and that's to say churches say they don't have enough people in their congregation and they don't have enough creativity or musicians or whatever, and they're turning away LGBT people all the time. So that's a classic example. And then there's less controversial examples, but equally damaging people with disabilities, uh, people of other ethnic backgrounds, you know, etc. cetera. Uh, churches that happily turn other people away all the time are saying that God isn't sending them enough. Do you, do you see what I mean? That's that's how a, a, yeah. a, a, a mindset of scarcity can mm -hmm. ignore the abundance that God is sending. And for the same, why do they turn people who they regard as different away? Because they're worried about being overwhelmed. They're worried about losing their identity. So it's the same stuff as you've got in John 2, John 4, and John 6. We're still doing it. And, of course, we criticize other churches who turn away people that our church doesn't turn away, but we close our eyes to who our church turns away. You know, we need somebody else to point these things out rather than being able to just see them as a way of congratulating ourselves. And once you see that transformation, then you see the, the job of ministry is to find ways to receive the too much that God is giving us rather than the way to scratch around to find a meagre meal out of the too little that God provides. Mm. 
And of course, again, looking at it eschatologically, in heaven, we will be perpetually overwhelmed by the too muchness. <laughs> so to live God's yeah. future now is to live in that superabundance yeah. and not to put up the barriers of self-protection. Mm. And of course, the classic okay. example of that is Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve choose the scarcity of the one apple they're not supposed to eat over the, the abundant garden of the everything that they've been given. So. We can't say we haven't been warned. Mm, yeah. So we're always eager to learn from other leaders and faith communities. Uh, I wonder as we come to the end of our interview, is there something wonderful happening at St. Martin in the Fields or in the Church of England more broadly that you'd like to share with us? Well, I that that really is an invitation to talk about St. Martin's. So it is, yes. <laughs> so... Let me name a couple of wonderful things that are happening here. Um, I'll, I'll just take three. So the first one I'd like to talk about is our Asylum Seekers Group, which is a classic example of abundance over scarcity. We found, when, when I came to St. Martin's 12 years ago, we, we found the clergy at the time, a, a lot of people sleeping on in, in the pews. We don't let them lie down, but they would still sleep sitting up. And they tended to be from outside the EU that obviously Britain was a part of at the time. And a lot of them were asylum seekers. And so we set up a group, especially for asylum seekers, and that has proved to be an extraordinary group that kept going through COVID in very adverse conditions and where most of the, well, many of the leaders now are people who came as members of the group. There's about 70 asylum seekers and probably about a dozen people in the congregation that part of that group every Sunday. That's been an incredible blessing because, as I always say with that kind of ministry, it may or may not be good for asylum seekers. It's absolutely fantastic for the congregation because it introduces them to real hands-on relationship, real being with, with people experiencing, you know, pretty desperate things in their lives, but they don't really want to talk about how they got from Pakistan to the UK across you know, the Bosporus and hanging on to a truck or whatever it was, they really want to talk about the issues of the day and what's going on in Gaza or what's going on in Ukraine. They, they you know, they want to, they're, 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 they're fascinating people with great life experience. I think the second thing I uh, I'm, would like to say is happening at St. Martin's would be the Nazareth community. Richard Carter went on retreat in January 2017, read my book, Nazareth Manifesto, was thinking of moving to another parish uh, to take up another position, came back and said to me, I've realised the city is my monastery and I want to set up a community according to the principles of the Nazareth Manifesto here, and it's now 250 strong. Mm. And it's, you know, it's the fastest growing and one of the largest re religious communities in the Anglican Communion, I think. Mm. Um, it's been an extraordinary thing. A uh, hundred of those people live in London, 150 connect with us through the Nazareth Companions online. And it, to me, it's a perfect example of how you grow the church by going deeper, not more superficial. We expect people to spend three distinct hours of silent prayer each week. That's one of the first commitments people make. They, make, they sign up for a year. They can keep signing up, and most people do, but not everybody. Mm. Um, you know, there's seven commitments. They all begin with S. You can imagine what they are. Sabbath, scripture, service, that kind of stuff. 
And then the third thing uh, I'd just like briefly to mention is out of the scarcity of the pandemic, we created an inquirer's course called Being With. You might recognise the name by now. Yeah. Um, and that has had extraordinary success, particularly in the Episcopal Church in America, where several dioceses are adopting it kind of on block. And uh, it has proved just a great, well, as somebody calls it in a very American term, a great onboarding Mm -hmm. Uh, program and the theological principle at the heart of that is that God created the universe in order to be with us in Christ so every time we discover what it means to be with each other we are getting a glimpse of the secret at the heart of the universe Mm -hmm. and so people discover extraordinary things and the second principle is that the Holy Spirit has been work in your life since your life began um, which means that as people share experiences, profound experiences from their lives, as they're, as they're given a shape, you know, a, a structure for doing, they gradually realise that what they're sharing, they're witnessing to each other about the power of the Holy Spirit. So th- that's beingwith.org. You can find it online. Um, there are books, there are videos, there are all the kind of usual paraphernalia of these kind of yeah. things. But it has been a transformative thing. So those are three signs of great joy. That's well, Sam, thank you for being with us today. (laughs) It's been a real gift. But we are not done yet. Uh, We've come now to the lightning round, a much beloved tradition here on the Vital and Thriving podcast. That's right. And it's, it's rigid. 20 seconds or less to answer three questions. Are you ready? Now, caveat here, because we, we, we did give you an advance warning of these questions and there's the potluck question. Yes, no, I can, I'm, you, I'm ready for that. I'm you're, okay, all right. Okay, I just want to make sure we're good. Okay, all right, here we go. Ready. First, what is the best thing you ever ate at a church potluck? Go. Well, the best thing and the only thing are the same thing. It's mac and cheese. I don't think you are actually allowed to eat anything else at a church potluck or prepare anything else. It mm. has to be mac and cheese every time. Works for me. Really? <laughs> Been a pastor in the American Southeast. <laughs> What is your very first memory of a worship service? My father was a pastor, and very occasionally at the 11 o'clock service, when it was over, he would stretch out his hand and let me put my hand in his and walk down the aisle together. Beautiful. Lastly, tell us the name of of either a church leader or a theologian who isn't a white male that you're listening to or learning from right now that you just think we should know about? My colleague and neighbour, Lucy Winkett at St. James Piccadilly in London, I just Mm -hmm. think is a remarkable human being and a wonderful priest. And the line of hers that I most come back to is, forgiveness is renouncing the desire to have had a better past. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Wow. Thank you so much for being our guest today, Sam. We have really enjoyed having you on the show. It's been a privilege and a pleasure. Yes. And we look forward to hosting you in San Francisco in the not, in the not too distant future. <laughs> Some conference that Scott's going to invent yes, <laughs> so that we can right. fly you here. That's <laughs> right. We are. I haven't been to San Francisco since 1984, so it's high time. It's so changed. It's Good. changed. <laughs> One or two bridges there, I think. Yes, indeed. A couple indeed. of streetcars. It's true. So, Claire... What did you learn from Sam today? As always, I learned so much. 
I was really struck when we asked him how he got where he is today by just the simple statement that, you know, he had some thoughts about where his life might go and what his gifts were. And then he read the Gospels and the example of Jesus and the story of Jesus was so compelling and particularly Jesus' commitment to being with those who are experiencing poverty or marginalization of some kind. What it made me think of, we said as we were welcoming him into the online studio, I mentioned that I was an undergrad when Sam was installed as the dean of Duke Cathedral and I was present for his installation. And, you know, I was a very tender-hearted 18-year-old who loved church, so I'm sure I was inclined to be moved by liturgy. But there was this moment in that service and... I don't know if he planned it or if this was just always a part of it, but there was a moment when he took off his, all of his vestments and, you know, this was Duke University Chapel. So he's got all of the church garb and all of the academic garb and the mayor of Mm -hmm. Durham's there and the president of the university's there, you know, everyone's there. He takes everything off like layers of stuff and he was just wearing a t-shirt and he went out and washed the feet of these people who were a part of the community as a really central action of that liturgy. And among them were, you know, the janitors of the chapel and the president of Duke University and like all of these people. Um, And that image just came to me, how our, our lives can be so convicted and converted when we take the stories of scripture seriously. And it just really seemed like so much of his life and his work, which has been a gift to me and I trust will be a gift to our listeners, just comes out of that relationship with Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was it was such a um, privilege to just spend a little time with him today. Sam is, you know, he's one of a handful of people for me. It's it's funny. I'm I'm here at Westminster College where um, mm-hmm. Leslie Newbigin was a student. And one of the things I've been noticing here, there are magpies everywhere. And Newbigin talked about magpies. He, he called himself a magpie. He says, I, I feather, mm-hmm. you know how magpies feather their nests with whatever they find. Um, and, you know, I'm a magpie. They're, they're, but there's a handful of people that I feather my nest with uh, as, a, mm-hmm. as a preacher, as a thinker that just help guide me. You know, Rowan Williams is one of those people. Willie Jennings is one of those people. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sarah Coakley is one of those people. But uh, Sam Wells is really like one of the, uh, you know, one on one hand kind of people that he has a way of just thinking about uh, theology, our tradition, and the moment we're in. Uh, and he just he he is a canonical intelligence and uh, a creative. Uh, to, there's the heart and the mind are equally <laughs> equally big, um, uh, and he just has helped me. And so he's somebody I just pay attention to. Mm-hmm. Um, but today, the thing that really is striking me is this this notion of being with and how this is so tied to what we're doing in Violent Thriving. Mm-hmm. And it's so hard. If you really believe that God is present uh, in the lives of your neighbors, so that we we shift we shift from this notion of kind of, you know, how do we get them to come to us? Mm-hmm. And, you know, how do we get them to come to our church? How do we get them to be part of our group? Uh, to actually being curious to know them and to actually discover how is God present in their lives and in that place? It's it's what we 
it's what Jesus told us to do in Luke 10, go find these people of peace. <laughs> and, uh, and, and it's really, really hard to kind of make that cultural shift and to make that shift in how we do church. Um, and I just want to encourage the listeners out there, particularly those who are in the process and going, I, I'm confused. <laughs> I'm mm. not sure. Well, yes, we are. We are confused. Mm. Uh, we're, we're, we're making our way, but, but this, I think this kind of shift towards being with is the only way we will discern a viable future. Mm. It, we'll really be a part of what God's doing in our neighborhoods. So listening to Sam, just, it just, it, it, it challenges me even more that this is, a, this is an essential shift in our culture that yeah. needs to happen. Absolutely. Thanks for highlighting that. And thank you, everybody listening, for joining us for this conversation today. We are looking forward to sharing another exciting episode with you all soon. This podcast is part of Vital and Thriving Congregations, a joint initiative between the Center for Church Innovation and the Episcopal Church in the Bay Area, the Diocese of California. For more information, visit churchinnovation.org.